as I was thinking about these couple Sundays, uh, there have been a couple of things that have, that have been observations for me over the last year and a half. Uh, and we talked about one last week. We talked about fear. Um, uh, fear has been something that has sort of plagued the culture. And in some ways, rightly so, because we've been fighting this deadly disease. Um, but Jesus tells us, uh, and I'll remind you about last week, Jesus tells us, he suggests in, in, uh, in Matthew chapter 16 that there are worse things in this world than death. And that living in the fear of death is one of the, is one of the top things on that list. As Christians, we don't need to fear death and we don't need to, to live in fear. That's one of the great things that Jesus does for us. His resurrection teaches us that we are now free to live our lives with courage, with purpose, with meaning, and not to live in fear. We've just been pounded through the media and uh, all, all the forms of media to, to just be so concerned with, with safety um, I don't think God calls us to live a life that's concerned about safety. Life is not safe. But God is good. And so we can trust ourselves to him. No matter what comes, he's faithful. He's good. You know, we live in a world where we're, we're vulnerable. That's okay. Vulnerability is not a bad thing. In fact, We can find great strength in our vulnerability. Jesus demonstrates the great power of God in in, in allowing himself to be vulnerable. He allows himself to be arrested, crucified. And that vulnerability overcomes death and provides us with freedom, forgiveness, the grace of God. God exercises power in a very different way than we think about it. And it's always through vulnerability. It's pretty amazing. It's so counterintuitive. He kind of does everything in ways that are unexpected. Well, this morning I wanted to talk about another thing, and that is love. Last week we talked about fear. This morning we're going to talk about love. So the question is, what is the one distinguishing mark or characteristic that separates Christians from all other humans? What makes us different? Well, Jesus told us it was love. In John 13, in verse 35, Jesus says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is the one distinguishing characteristic of the Christian community, of Christian lives, whether as individuals or as communities, as churches. That's the one distinguishing characteristic. In fact, what he does here in this, in this one little verse is he gives the rest of the world a permission to judge whether we're, or not we're his disciples or not. They can watch us live our lives... And depending on how we live our lives, 
they get to judge. He's given them permission to judge us and say, well, that's a follower of Jesus and that one's not. Love is what distinguishes us from all others. And what I've been watching over the last 18 months has been appalling to me, embarrassing to me, humiliating to me, because people who I think are part of my community, people who profess to be followers of Jesus, have been acting in ways that have been embarrassing to me. People who are holding themselves out and using the name of Jesus to identify themselves have been acting in ways that just are astonishing to me. And providing the rest of the world an opportunity to say, well, if that's what Christianity looks like, I don't want any part of it. Or to be able to say, well, he says he's a Christian, but I don't believe it. Because there's no love being expressed there. It's been tough for me. I have a lot of really close friends who've been saying things and acting in ways that have been really embarrassing to me. It seems like they've gotten things backwards. They've allowed their political opinions and philosophies to interpret their scripture rather than having scripture inform their political positions. They've gotten the cart before the horse. Well, anyway, that's been one of my little pet peeves all year. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And my friends kind of come back at me and they'll say things like, well, we're taught to contend for the faith, to defend the gospel, to fight for what's right and just. Let me let in on a little secret. God does not need you to defend him. You don't need to defend. How do you defend God? You defend God like you defend a lion. You just open the cage and get out of the way. Some of us have forgotten who we are and why we're here and what we're about and who we represent and what God has called us to. It is by this that everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We lost a great voice in the Christian community uh, a couple of years ago by the name, uh, a man by the name of Dallas Willard. He was a philosophy professor down at USC. Wonderful Christian man. Written a number of books. One of the books that he wrote was called The Divine Conspiracy, in which he basically speaks about these issues, about love and living as Jesus' disciples. And he makes a really interesting statement in one of his footnotes in the back of the book. He said that there are many of us who profess to the name of Jesus who are what he calls, I've never, never saw this before, I've never seen anybody else use it, but he says, 
He calls, he calls us vampire Christians. And he describes it this way. He says, vampire Christians are those who want just enough of Jesus' blood to live forever. But not enough to live like Jesus every day. Isn't that the deal with vampires? You know, you drink a little blood, you get, you're immortal. You never die. And a lot of Christians come to their faith that way. They don't want to go to hell. They want their fire insurance. They want to live forever, but they're not really interested in really being a faithful representative of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And I think we all either know people who are vampire pyre Christians, or maybe if we're honest, uh, we can say, yeah, that might describe me too. Well, That's sort of the introduction, I suppose, of today's talk, because we're going to be taking a look at a scripture in the book of Romans this morning, Romans chapter 12. So if if you brought your Bible, turn to Romans 12, and we are going to talk about the marks of of the true Christian. Romans 12, 9, let's start there. He starts right off, he says, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not lag in zeal, be ardent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is quite a mouthful. Here in the 12th chapter of Romans... Paul preaches his own version of the Sermon on the Mount. He's pointing back to Jesus' teaching. In 12 short verses, he turns out 30 instructions, all of them meant to flesh out uh, the bones of Christ's one commandment to love. Paul had good reason for going 
to all this trouble, as he wrote to the Romans. Because the church in Rome at that time was splitting apart at, 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 in at least two really, in at least two different ways. The church was splitting inside by conflict between Jewish and Gentile Christians and outside by conflict between, the, between Christian and non-Christian Romans. There were black eyes and bad feelings all over the place. Marcus went to the midweek service so he wouldn't have to sit in the same room with Clovis on Sunday. Lucius was so mad at both of them, he quit coming to church altogether. And Chloe had just bought herself a pit bull to keep their pagan neighbors from walking across her yard. It was a mess all the way around. People said that they believed that God was love. They said they believed in the power of goodness, at least until someone crossed them. And then goodness and love fell pretty much by the wayside. And retaliation turned out to be what they really believed in after all. If you've ever been on the receiving end of a real grievous wrong, then you know how your mind works. Something like this. This is wrong. I'm in a lot of pain here. This should not have happened to me. Somebody needs to pay for this. Evildoers must be stopped. And if I don't do it, somebody else will get hurt. You know, it's not my nature. But I'm going to strike back. I will fight fire with fire. After all, God is a God of justice. And what happened to me is not right by any stretch. So this is how it usually starts. Then the lawsuit gets filed. The insult is returned. The line is drawn. The Cold War begins. All that stony silence and clenched teeth because something deep down inside of us believes that we will be annihilated if we don't fight back. And so we, so we start lobbing verbal grenades over social media. At my nephew Will's first birthday party, first birthday, he was as round and bald as a Buddha at that point, still just hovering on the the, the, the start of speech, the verge of speech, never out of his parents' sight. He was a typical only child, first child, used to being the very center of attention. But he wasn't spoiled yet because he hadn't yet learned how to manipulate love for his own ends. Cute as he could be. He was just... He just thought everyone was loved the way he was loved. And so he gave that love away as fast as he got it. 
just a little snuggle bunny. There's just a handful of us there that day, Will's parents, a couple aunts and uncles, and his, um, and his godparents were there with their seven-year-old son, Jason. So after the cake and the singing and the presents were all over, little Will let us know how pleased he was by giving us a little dance, something he had just recently invented. And so he was kind of there, kind of wiggling with a lot of fancy arm work, and, just, and, and we were all standing around watching him, just as cute as he could be. We're all there circling around him, admiring his dance, when the little seven-year-old, the godparent's son, Jason, couldn't stand it anymore. And he charged through the circle of standing you know, adults. He put both, both hands on Will's little chest and just shoved him. And he went down hard. His little butt hit the floor first, and then his head hit the floor with a crack. And at first, his eyes got that big. He just had that big look of just complete surprise on his face. Because no one had ever hurt him before. And he didn't know what to make of it. He didn't know. I mean, this was all new. And he screamed, but not for too long. His mom scooped him up and hugged him, kind of made it all better. And the first thing, once his mom kind of put him back up on his feet, the first thing that little Will did was to totter over to Jason because he knew that Jason somehow was at the bottom of all of this No one had ever been mean to him before. He didn't know what that thing was. So he did what he had always done. He, he, want, he, he taught it over to, to Jason and put his arms around him and just put his head into, into Jason's body. And it was at that moment that all of my Christian conviction went right out the window. I'm going to buy him a BB gun for his next birthday. (laughs) Brass knuckles. I'm going to get him karate lessons for toddlers. (laughs) I mean, it just killed me to think that that I think how that sweet little child is now going to have to learn to defend himself. But it was either that or he'll be eating dust for the, for the rest of his life on the playground with somebody's foot on the back of his neck. Only according to the Apostle Paul, Will was right and I was wrong. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, he writes in Romans but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. 
What Will did to Jason put an end to all the meanness in the room. Can you imagine? We're all ready to just, you know, put little Jason over our knee and give him a good thumping. But the reaction here is little Will puts his arms around Jason, puts his, just puts his face right into him, and we're all just, we all just melt. What Will did to Jason put an end to all that meanness in the room. What I wanted to do to Jason would have multiplied all that meanness. My attitude, not so good. Now, from my point of view, Paul's advice here in Romans is idealistic, it's impractical, it's even dangerous to one's health, right? But there it is. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, all I can figure is that Paul had incredible faith in the power of love. Faith that most of us either do not share or else we're not eager to test. He seemed to understand that the real enemy is not whatever pushes us down in the middle of our dance, but whatever it is inside of us that wants to leap up and push back. Evil is never satisfied with just controlling one side of the situation. Its goal is to infect everybody involved. The victim along with the bully, the plaintiff along with the defendant, the offended along with the offender. When everyone has his or her dukes up in the air and ready to, to duke it out, and there is a loaded gun in every household, then the enemy will have won. Because the whole point is to recruit the good guys by making them believe that they are stopping the bad guys. And this is not how to do it, Paul says. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Because the moment you curse them, you join them. And however good it may feel at the moment, it is still a surrender to the dark side. The only way to conquer evil, according to Jesus and Paul, is to absorb it. Paul says, take it into yourself and disarm it. Neutralize its acids. Serve as a charcoal filter for this smog, this darkness. Suck it up. Put a straitjacket on it. Turn it over to God so that when you breathe out again, the air is pure. This is an incredible dare. And Paul apparently knows that very few of us will accept it unless there's something in it for us. And so he adds this little bonus near the end here. He says, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, 
you will heap burning coals on their heads. Nice talk, Paul. You know, convince us to care uh, for our enemies by telling us how much it'll hurt them if we do. Right. Don't you ever have problems with these things in Scripture? I have problems all the time. This stuff bothers me a lot. It goes against my nature. It goes against everything inside of me. Nice talk, Paul. Yeah, right. Who do you, who do you think you are? Well, first of all, I don't know what this little crazy sentence is all about, this about burning coals on their heads. I, I don't understand it. Martin Luther, uh, the reformer, thought that it meant that those who are converted by love burn against themselves once they've discovered what they've been missing all this time. Well, I don't know. All I know is that the first half of the sentence renders the second half harmless. Those of us who come upon our enemies in a weakened state and who resist the temptation to take revenge, take advantage of them, who help them instead, giving those who have hurt them food and drink, then those people are already out of danger. By the time they have by the time we've kind of packed the picnic lunch and, and filled the, sermon, the, ser, the thermos with pink lemonade, I guarantee you that we have forgotten all about the burning coals. That's way in the rearview mirror. Abraham Lincoln said, Do I not conquer my enemy by making him my friend? Now, there's nothing sentimental or the least bit easy about any of this. There's not even a guarantee that it's going to work. But one thing, is, one thing is for sure, that when we repay evil with evil, then evil is all there is in bigger and more toxic piles. The only way to, reserve, to, 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 to reverse this process, to to turn this whole process around is to behave in totally unexpected, counterintuitive ways by blessing the persecutor, feeding the enemy, embracing the bully, breaking the vicious cycle by refusing to participate in it anymore. That's what love is. Paul says... It's not a warm feeling between like-minded friends, but a plain old imitation of Christ who took all of the meanness in the world and ran it through the filter of his own body, repaying evil with good, blame with pardon, death with life. You can call it divine reverse psychology. It worked once and it can work again. Whenever God can find anybody who's willing to give it a try. Last week I 
quoted Frederick Beekner once or twice or three times, probably three times, I think, yeah. One of my favorite writers. I'm going to inflict him on you again. Here's Frederick Beekner. Talks about four kinds of love. He says, the love for equals is a human thing. Of friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely. The world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich, of the black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured love for the torturer. This is God's love. And it conquers the world. I want to go back to John 13. These are the words of Jesus nearly at the very end. He's providing some encouragement for his disciples. He's giving them, these are kind of his, his really his, his last instructions, his most important things. He says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father, short prayer this morning. Reach into our hearts that want justice, revenge, payback. We want to set things right. Remind us, Lord, that we don't need to defend you. So, Lord, teach us how to love. So that the world may know that we are your followers, your disciples. And we pray. Amen.